listening to Sunday Sermons from Warren Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org. If you have your Bibles, you can be turning to Psalm 127. Um, this morning we're going to be talking about what does God say about abortion. And uh, we know that this is a very difficult topic to talk about as far as, I mean, know that it addresses a situation where people have been hurt. Um, people are on both sides of, of where do they land as far as how they feel about it. But today we're just going to look at Scripture. One of the things that Pastor Ken and I talked about whenever we began praying about this series was we don't want it to be our feelings. We don't want it to be our opinions. We just want it to be what the Bible says. So this morning, we're just going to simply say, thus saith the Lord. And I believe that the Bible is the authority. I believe it's where we get our worldview, our biblical worldview. I believe as a Christian that if you don't believe that every jot and tittle is inspired by the Word of God, then you already say it's with error. But I believe that you can find everything about life, death, and everything in between right here in the Word of God. Uh, he makes no mistakes. So I just want to start this morning by reading this passage of Scripture. Uh, this is one that just kind of hit me as I began researching and studying and praying about this message. But Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Amen? I mean, if you have children today, you know uh, how important they are. Um, the fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has qu his quiver full of them, and I can attest to that. Amen. Um, they shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in their gate. And one of the things that hit me just this morning as I was just praying about this is abortion attacks this verse head on. Uh, if you look at it, it says, Behold, children are heritage from the Lord. So if children are heritage from the Lord, then abortion attacks the family. The fruit of the womb is a reward, so abortion attacks the mother. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full. That attacks fathers. And then they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with the enemies in the gate. That attacks society. Because in those days, that's where the men settled their business, was at the gates. And so we see right out of the gate that it attacks everything that God has put his thumbprints on. And one of the things I want you to know is that, that fully, I believe that God is the giver and taker of life. I don't believe children are made in the image of convenience. I don't believe children are made in the image of culture. I don't believe children are created in the context of Roe versus Wade or any political affiliation. I believe that God is the giver, the taker, the maker of life. All children are, not, are created by God, for God, in the image of God. And there are no mistakes in the mighty, loving, sovereign hand of God. When you look at it, January 22nd, 1973 was one of the darkest days in the history of this great nation. Not to take away from Pearl Harbor or 9-11, but it's the darkest day. Those two combined do not compare to the tragedy and the darkness that is found on that day. Pharaoh and Hitler has to take a back seat to America. 
In America, if a woman is on her way to have an abortion and a drunk driver hits her and kills the baby in her womb, he is tried for involuntary manslaughter. Yet that same woman can make it to the abortion clinic, have the abortion, and the baby just be called a clump of sails. How messed up is even that? In America, on average, since 1973, 62 million babies have been aborted. That is 3,629 babies per day, 151 an hour, two and a half every minute, and a baby aborted in the United States of America on average every 24 seconds. Isaiah 5.20 says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Joni Erickson Tata says this, Though gradually, though no one remembers exactly how it happened, the unthinkable becomes tolerable, tolerable and then acceptable and then legal and then applaudable. And that's where we're at, that we applaud these things as a nation. This is sin. Regardless of where you stand today, whether in this room or listening, it is murder. And we can't continue to act like it will disappear. I've been more convicted than ever that we have to do something. God created and give you breath today all across this room to no longer be silent, but to do something. So this morning I want to talk about four cries. The first one is a cry from the throne. God matters. We have seen to take God out of the equation. We have seen to try to push down that God is the creator. Genesis 1-1, as simple as it is, in the beginning, God created. And that word in the Hebrew is the only word used that relates to God and the creation, meaning that he's the one that done it, and it's exclusively done by him. He establishes very early in Scripture that he is the creator Elohim, the one who has power to create, the one who is strong, the one who has to speak matter in place to even speak the land, to even speak the stars in the sky. He is the creator, and that is even the creator of unborn children. Uh, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were made, were created that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, or principalities and powers. This last sentence, all things, all things, were created for him, by him. So God is the creator of all things, including humans, including babies. So if God's the one that created you, there's a purpose for that creation. God didn't do anything haphazard. I promise you that every ocean is exactly where God designed it to be. Every mountain sits at the highest peak of where God said it was going to be. Everything that God does is in order, and this is in order. So if God designed you, then you are uniquely wired. He's a creator. Psalm 139, 13 through 18 says that for you, 
formed my inward parts. David acknowledging who God is in his creation. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows very well. He keeps on. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. Unformed, And in your book they were all written. The days fashioned for me when yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in a number than the sand. When I wake, I'm still with you. Psalm 139 screams God designing you in a special way. It paints a vivid picture of God's intimate involvement with a preborn person. God created David where in the inward parts, not at birth, but in the inward parts in the womb before birth. David says to his creator, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. Each person, regardless of his parentage or handicap, has not been manufactured on a cosmic assembly line, but personally formed by God all the days of his life or planned out by God before any came to be. How arrogant would it be for us to ascend or try to ascend the throne of God? One person tried it, one being tried it, and he was kicked out of heaven. And yet we as humans have the audacity to say that we're in control. And we think that God's just going to slap us on the wrist. Uniquely placed, acts, I mean uniquely called, Jeremiah 1.5. Think about this. God speaking to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nation. So the first great truth is everything about life is rooted in the unshakable purposes and sovereignty of God. You are not your own. You are God's. You are not self-made. You are God-made. You are not first to choose him. He first chose you. You are not an accident. You are designed. Your life is rooted in God, and that is a great source of strength and stability, knowing that our life is in his hands. You're uniquely wired. You're uniquely called, but you're uniquely placed. Acts 17, 26 through 28. And he has made one from every blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of our own poets have said, for we are also his offsprings. Think about this. God didn't make a mistake of who your parent was or who your parents are. God had that pre-appointed, where you were going to live and who you were going to be born to. And yet we think we're, we're in control of this. Uh, he is sovereign over all. He is God and he has no equal. We've got we to gotta understand that, that God matters in this because ultimately it is about God. Why were we created in the first place? For God, by God. So we have to see that God is sovereign in this and we can't just push him to the side as if he doesn't exist. He is the ultimate authority of life. And so he is sovereign over all. I just want you to listen to these couple of verses out of Isaiah. Isaiah 43, 10 through 13. You are my witness, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no other. 
I have declared and saved, I have proclaimed, and there was no foreign God among you, therefore you are my witnesses. He goes on to say, says the Lord, I am God, indeed before the days was, I am he. Think about that. That is God saying you can look everywhere you want to look, you can look high, you can look low, you can dig into every kind of religion, every kind of philosophy, and you will never find another like me. I am all-knowing, and I can't find one like me. So God is sovereign. He is God, and he is in control. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11, Remember the former things of old? For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure, calling a bird a prey from the east, the man who execute my, executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I also will bring it to pass. I have purposed it. And I will also do it. God's in control. God is not shaken by abortion. He is not wringing his hands and how to handle it. And so many ask, well, where is God in this? Why, why does God allow this to happen? And I will stand right here today and tell you that we cannot dig into the mind and the mystery of God. We don't know why God allows some babies to be aborted. But I will tell you this, I believe that God is sovereign in all of it. Because if he's not, then we're in trouble. But listen to this. If God, and this is hard to, to, to fathom, but if God wants a baby to live, the baby will live. Man is not so important that he will thwart, thwart God's will. But because of sin, man tries to ascend. But in 1977, I want to give you an example of God's sovereignty. In 1977, Gianna Jessen, and some of y'all may have heard of her. She's a, a pro-life advocate. Her mom was encouraged to have a saline abortion at seven and a half months. After 18 hours of being injected with the saline, her mom went back to the birth clinic to give birth. The amazing thing is, is the doctor that was supposed to be there, the abortionist that was supposed to be there that day to deliver her had not made it to work, and she was delivered still alive. And this is what she says, if he had been there, he would have strangled or suffocated me. Instead, a nurse saw that I was alive and called an ambulance, and I was taken to the hospital. This is her words. I was delivered alive after 18 hours. I should be blind. I should be burnt. I should be dead, and I am not. You know, the fantastic vindication is the fact that the abortionist had to sign my birth certificate. So I know who he is, and it also says for any skeptics listening on my medical record, born during saline abortion, ha, they didn't win. And this is what Mother Teresa says about, said about her. God is using Gianna to remind the world that each human being is precious to him. It is beautiful to see the strength of the love of Jesus, which he has poured into her heart. My prayer for Gianna and for all who listen to her is that the message of God's love will put an end to abortion with the power of love. God is sovereign. But also he is judge over all. He will judge the bloody hands. 
In 2 Kings 21, 12 through 14, I'm not going to have you turn there, but this is what he says, and it's right there in front of me. I can read it. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity upon Jerusalem and Judah that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all their enemies. You know why he was doing that? It's because they were sacrificing their children to Melech. This is what God said about the children of Israel. So do we really think that God is not holding us accountable? There is no reason outside of his long suffering that he hadn't poured us out like a dish and wiped us down. Stalin killed 40 million of his own people. Hitler, 30 million. The USA, since Roe versus Wade, has killed 62 million people. Do we really think God's just going to sit back? God will judge. He will judge lying lips. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, according to Proverbs 12, 22. And here's the lies. Is abortion is a cure-all for an unwanted pregnancy. Abortion is about choice. Abortion is empowering to women. And those are all lies from the enemy. They're lying in order to make profit off of the women and their children. I know some of this is hard to hear, but we got to get through this to get to the good news. He will judge the wicked hearts. Psalms 37, 38, But the transgressors shall be destroyed altogether. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The reason I'm saying this to you this morning is I want you to know how slippery of a slope that the United States of America is on today because of abortion. And at any moment, God could rain down judgment and he'll be holy, he'll still be amazing, and we will still bow down at his feet. We have to understand that God will not just continue to sit around, and he judges his house first. To start off with the right frame of mind, we've got to understand this is ultimately about God. Motherhood is about God. Fatherhood is about God. Marriage is about God. Sex is about God. And therefore, the children inside the womb are about God. Period. So we have a cry from the throne. God matters. There's a cry from the womb. The unborn matters. First, abortion is selfish. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 tells us, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Abortion is selfish because it, it's the God of me. God is the God of all. He's the master of creation. The God of me is the pretender of the throne. The God of me is arrogant. The God of me is insecure. And the God of me is lonely. And I want you to just listen to when I tell you yourself, just when you listen to this quote by Michelle Williams, the famed mom and the greatest showman. We all know who she is. We've, we've watched the movie, at least probably most people in here. But this is her acceptance speech at the Golden Globe Awards. And this is what she says. I am grateful for the acknowledgement of the choices I've made. 
And I'm also grateful to have lived at a moment in our society where choice exists because as women and as girls, things can happen to our bodies that are not our choice. I've tried my very best to live my life of my own, now just listen to the arrogance, of my own making. And not just a series of events that happened to me, but one that I can stand back and look at and recognize my handwriting all over. Sometimes messy and scrawling, sometimes careful and precise, but one that I carved with my own hand. I wouldn't be able to do this without employing a woman's right to choose, to choose when to have my children and with whom. When I felt supported and able to balance our lives, knowing as all mothers know that the scales must and will tip towards our children now. She was applauded. Standing ovation for her boldness to stand up and be heard. I choose when and with whom. I live my life as one that I have carved out. Yet that is completely anti-Bible. If you believe the Bible is the authority of God's word. We are living in a culture that worships itself, serves itself, and truly has the audacity to put itself in the place of God. So abortion itself is because it's the God of me on the altar of convenience. Roe versus Wade was passed, and you can go back, and I'm sure most of y'all know more about it than I do. When you go back and read the premise of it, it is passed on the basis of health and rape and incest. But listen to these statistics. Latest statistics on abortion. 25% not ready to have a child. Think about that. Can I just say this this morning? Tiffany gave birth to six children and we didn't plan one of them. We didn't sit down with a calendar and go, well, we can have a baby next spring. No. And if you did that, that's your business. That's fine. But what I'm saying is there was never a time where we felt like, oh, boy, we're not ready, so let's just do away with this one. 23% can't afford a child. I never looked around and go, well, honey, we got four. We can't afford six. Nineteen percent. We're just done having children. We were done after two. (laughs) But God wasn't. And just to add a little sprinkle, he just sent an amazing young man our way when he was 12 years old, and he just came and become part of the family. Eight percent, don't want to be a single mom. Seven percent, not mature enough. I have my thoughts on that one. 4% 4% interfere with education or career. So a whopping 4.5% has to do with the health of the mom or the baby. And get this, less than half percent is because of rape. So out of over 62 million abortions, less than 2 million fall under Roe versus Wade. Why? Because it's selfish. Listen to this. Former Surgeon General C. Everett Coop said, In 35 years of medicine, I have never seen one case where abortion was necessary to save a mother's life. This is some quotes from just recently. Jane, 
Everyone is human. Everyone has done things that they regret. Having an abortion was the most upsetting and darkest decision of my life. However, not regretful for our family. We are a family of four, and while we are happy now, we were miserable and believed that trying for a baby would save the marriage. That was not the case. So we tried for a baby. We got pregnant and decided that that was still not enough to save the marriage, so we abort the baby. After both agreeing that it was not the time, we went through the abortion and worked on our marriage. Now, nine months later, the heartbeat abortion bill was passed, and I can only imagine all the heartbreak and stress this is causing for many women, men, and families. Alyssa, I got my abortion during COVID-19 pandemic. I was finishing my final semester remotely and knew that my best option was abortion. The person who got me pregnant was manipulating, I'll leave that alone, me constantly, and I knew that I could not have a baby with this person. Okay, we need counseling. At the time, it was so stressful, and I was not grateful because I wanted it to be done. Almost a year later, and I am grateful that I had access to get my abortion, which freed me from my ex, finished my degree, and my abortion allowed me to move across the country to work in reproductive rights. I would make this choice again and again. I am so grateful for abortion. One more. Brittany, this one here really gets me. I was a mother of three young children when I became pregnant in 2007. Abortion was the best option for me and my daughters. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Having that abortion changed the trajectory of our lives. Now, I want y'all to listen to this last line. Today, as a mother of four daughters, I am thriving in being the mother they deserve. So she had three children in 2007, she became pregnant with her fourth. It didn't fit her timeline. She had boarded that baby, and now she has another one, and she's thriving in being the mother they deserve. And I get it. She needs to be the mother they deserve, but what about that child that you killed? Does that baby matter? I would ask it all across the room. Do, do they matter? We say they matter, and I believe it with all my heart that they matter, but listen, abortion is selfish on the standpoint that it has nothing to do with the baby. It has to do with your rights, your choice, and it has to do with the idea that it just doesn't fit our agenda. Abortion sacrifice. Deuteronomy 12, 31, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way for every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire of their gods. Listen, they were literally taking their babies and they had this bronze god that they made, Malek, and he held his hands out. And they lit a fire under him, and his hands got hot, and they would lay their baby in the hands of that bronze statue, that false god, and they would burn their babies to him. Now, we say that that is detestable, and it is. How, how horrible do you have to be to take your newborn, your baby, and lay them in burning bronze hands to sacrifice to a false god. Yet, that's what saline abortion does to the baby. Gianna Jessen said it, I should have been burnt. 
When they inject that saline into the womb of that mother, into that baby's, into the sack there, that baby, it burns that baby. Think about the barbaric procedures. The lunch hour abortion. How, how, I mean, you can just run in and get it scraped out and go back to work. This may be hard to hear, but just, just think about it. The saline abortion where they just inject and burn the baby. And then the baby's delivered and laid over to the side to die. And then the late-term abortion where they literally dismember the baby and vacuum it out like it's nothing. And yet God said, hey, y'all, I, I, I knitted that baby. I put my hands. How many of y'all believe in the unseen hand of God? I do. God's unseen hand in the womb of that mother crafting that baby. And now I get it in 1973, you didn't have the old 4D sonograms, but like now you can see the baby and you're like, oh, they look just like their mama. Or, oh, they look just like this. Oh, look, they're sucking their thumb. Babies at eight weeks even recall in pain. And God is in that womb just working his miracle of life. And we think it's okay as a nation just to go in and go, God, you do not matter. Nancy Pelosi just this week says this, trying to come up with a bill to stop the Texas bill. This is about freedom. It's about freedom of women to have choice about the size and timing of their families, not business, not the business of people on the Supreme Court or members of Congress. And I'm thinking, wow. So if it's none of your business, why are you trying to pass a bill? Right? I mean, just the logic of some people. Mary Elizabeth Williams, great, famous author, author in America, January 23, 2013, wrote an article in Salon Magazine, and her article was, So What If Abortion Ends Life? This is what she said. I know that throughout my own pregnancies, I never wavered for a moment in belief that I was carrying a human life inside of me. I believe that's what a fetus is, a human life, and that doesn't make me one iota less solidly pro-choice. Here's the complicated reality in which we live. All life is not equal. That is a difficult thing for liberals like me to talk about, lest we wind up looking like death panel loving, kill your grandma and your precious baby stormtroopers. Yet a fetus can be a human life without having the same rights as the woman in whose body it resides. She's the boss, her life, and what is right for her circumstances and her health sound automatically trump the rights, should automatically trump the rights of the non-autonomous entity inside of her, period, always, period. End quote. Abortion is sin. It just goes right into the face of thou shalt not murder. It's anti-life. It is truly taking of an innocent life, a life that has God's fingerprint, his workmanship, and his breath in them. And to take the life of the unborn is sin. And we hear this all the time. It's the woman's body. Now, please understand me, ladies. I am not taking away who you are. But the argument is it's the woman's body. No, it's in the woman's body. The unborn child has its own DNA, 
its own blood type, its own brain function, its own lung function, its own kidney function, and even its own dreams. So who gets the power to decide if they live? Shouldn't it be the one who created them? His name is Jesus, according to Scripture. Here's the thing. As harsh as it sounds, abortion is murder. Period. Always period. And it is done on the altar of convenience to the God of me. It is anti-God because God is the giver and taker of life. He is the sustainer of life. And yet we truly believe we can elevate to the place of the omnipotent. Conception then, John MacArthur says this, conception then is the act of God whereby a person is created by God's sovereign will. A soul is breathed into the living tissue by the Holy Spirit. That soul's destiny is already known to God and determined by him from the foundation of the world. Abortion then becomes a violent anti-God act. It is not only a murder of the individual, but it is an affront to the creator. I believe abortion is the last official stand of the defiant apostate against God. It says, God, you will not determine who lives or die. I will. It's anti-God. It's anti-human. It's the dehumanizing of life. Life at this point has no value and it is one of the most heinous acts against humanity. Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. I, I, man, this, this, I had to really get on my knees and pray the other day when I come across this. The most merciful thing that a large family does to one of its infant members is to kill it. I have a picture in my office of my family. Hear me. And as I read that, I looked at that picture. And can I tell you, there has been nowhere in our journey of having children that I would look at one of my girls and go, the most merciful thing I can do for you is to take your life because I am not ready to have you. Every time Tiffany got pregnant, we praise the Lord that he trusted us. Two people who we know are messy and we struggle and we sure don't deserve God's handiwork in our lives. We praised him and we gave them back to him going, God, we understand they're not ours. They're yours. They're your creation. They're your design. They're your purpose. But God, I can't believe that you have given them to us to steward through life. Anywhere in our journey. And guys, I can tell you, ladies, I can tell you, we've heard everything there is to hear. Do you know what causes that? Do you know y'all don't need to have another baby? Why in the world would anybody have six babies and then take in another one? I want to tell you why, because they're not mine, they're his. And he's entrusted me for whatever reason. And don't think I had not said, God, I know you know all. I've got a question in this one. How anti-human is it? And how anti-God is it? And how anti-life is it to say the most merciful thing you could do 
is to take their life. And then whose responsibility is it to decide what's a big family and a small family? Because I thought I was doing good with six and seven. My dad's one of 12. I am not halfway of man my papa was. But hear me today, and I know I've said a lot. But I want you to know there's another cry. And it's a cry from the cross. Forgiveness matters. I want you to hear Jesus say this morning, Father, forgive them. But you think about God's amazing grace where sin abounds. Grace much more abound. Actually had an abortion, and I don't know in this room, whether you listen, whether you know people that have. Man, God is there going, please come to me. All you who are labored and heavy laden, all you who are carrying that badge of shame, all you who are, who are carrying that forgiveness. And you may be a man in here who, who, who was part of that. Man, God forgives. Jesus stretched his arms out on a cross to say, Father, forgive them. See his unconditional love. You cannot outsend the love of God. In this, this situation, I mean, you cannot. He has extended his mercy. See Jesus die for you. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption. The answer to it is you have to turn to Jesus. He's the one who bled and died that you could be redeemed back to the Father, that you could be forgiven. It was because of the blood that he shed that you can be forgiven. So you have to turn back to him. And then live in his resurrection, man. Live in the power. We are made new. You turn your life back to Jesus. You come to Jesus in this moment and go, God, I am sorry. Father, please forgive me. God's not going to sit there and go, well, do you remember when you did this and how bad you were at this? And I can't believe you did. He's just going to say, you know what? What did he say to the woman called an act of adultery? The ascended son of God who came from a throne stooped. Y'all, God, Jesus didn't peer down at that lady. He didn't look at her standing up here like we do so often as a church. He got down on his knees with her, and he got down in his face in this whole thing and is saying, I don't know what it said. I don't really care what it said. What I do know is that he looked at her in her face. He made eye contact with her. And he said, hey, where's your accusers? She looks around and he gets, I, I believe he got maybe a little closer. Hey, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. Can I tell you that God is stooping today? He, he's come and he is stooping down. He meets us where we are. He doesn't peer down from a lofty throne. He died on a cross so he could stoop. Think about the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus is walking through town. The people are pressing. She touched the hem of his garment, and immediately it says, he stopped and he turned. I believe he knew who she was, but I believe he wanted her to acknowledge it. 
He turned and he looked at her. And with those big old grace-filled eyes, he told her that she was healed. And I believe today that Jesus wants to turn for somebody. And then the woman at the well, he went there to her and he, he simply told her, he says, hey, I know everything about you. But because she had been married five times and was living with the man that wasn't her husband, he didn't say, hey, you go get it right and then come back. No, you know what he did? He wrapped him loving arms around her and he told her, he said, I'm your future. And I believe today that if you'll stop long enough in all the craziness and all the guilt and all the shame that can come with these kind of things, if you'll stop, you can hear Jesus say, here I am. I believe you can see him stoop down because he wants to come right where you're at. All he's saying is come. So there's a cry from the cross and Jesus is pleading to come. Well, then how do we respond? How do we as believers, as the church respond? And I just want to share this with you and I'm, I'm fixing to wrap this up. But there's a fourth cry. And unfortunately, this cry is very dim, very low. And it's a cry from the Christians. Our response matters. Whether we want to believe it or not, the world watches everything we do. They got their eyes on us, and they're watching. In Ezekiel chapter 22, God was fixing to rain judgment down on the children of Israel. And this is one of the most condemning, convicting verses I've ever read in Scripture. And I want to read it to us today because I pray that we won't sit on the sidelines any longer. Ezekiel 22, 30, and let's, let me give you some background. In 26, he says, The priest have violated my law and profaned my holy things. The priests were the, today would be the believers of today. The Bible says that we are a royal priesthood. So he said, I'm looking. He found the priest, the princes, that would be your political people, the government. They are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people, and to get dishonest gains. Does that sound pretty close to home? 28, her prophets, that's the preachers of the day, plastered them with untempered martyr. They're just trying to compromise and cover things up because Lord knows if you preach on these kind of things, you may get a little, little, little trouble. So we got we to gotta smooth things over. That's what they were doing in those days. And then he says the people of the land. That's the people. So in this, God is looking. This is all the sins that they have, they have committed. One of the sins, if you look back a little further, is they were shedding innocent blood. And this is what God told Ezekiel to tell the people. He said, I sought, verse 30, for a man among them who would make up a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. What's the next word say? But I found no one. Found no one. 
Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath, and I have recompensed their deeds on their own head, says the Lord God. Do you not think that it's not time for the church to repent over the death of 62 million babies? You may say, well, I didn't have anything to do with it. Yes, you did. I did. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. So before this can be addressed in the nation, it has to be addressed in the church. It is our sin. It's the sin of complacency, it's the sin of being silent, and it's the sin of apathy towards 62 million innocent lives. And the Bible is clear, judgment starts in the house of the Lord. So what do we do? We repent. Church, all across this room, we repent. If we want God to forgive us, if we want God to, to continue to work in our lives, if we want God to continue to grow the church, if we want revival to possibly happen in this community and in the nation, we must repent. That's not a very popular word in preaching anymore, but it is the truth. And we will not be held guiltless. So I'm going to tell you all across this room today, and my prayer for the last month is that God, give me the boldness as your mouthpiece to call Warren Community Church to repentance today. And I don't mean acknowledge that you heard some statistics or a quote that shook you up. I mean this is our sin. This is my sin. Not only do we repent, we must stand. What did he say? He said, I look for one, just one, not a hundred, not two hundred, one to stand and make up the gap so that I don't destroy the land. Just one. So let me ask a question. If the judgment of the United States of America was placed in our hands today, would God find one person in Warren Community Church that would come and go, God, it starts with me. God, I'm, I'm guilty. It's time to stop just showing up at church. It's time to go, God, we need you. Will he find one? Then we must get involved. It is time. We are called in Matthew chapter 5 to be the salt and the light of the earth. And I'm afraid that the church's light's really dim at the moment. When it comes to these social topics that we're talking about. The church has got their ticket to heaven. They're in a first class flight. And they've detached themselves from the reality of life here on this earth. And we stand by so often and we allow these kind of things. As Joni Erickson Tata said, it just sneaks in. 
But then it becomes tolerable. Then it becomes legal. And then it even becomes applaudable. It's time to be the light. It's time to sound the alarm. It's time to get out of our comfort. It's time to get out of our complacency. And it's time to say, God, I want to be proactive. I want to do something about this. Listen, you don't got to stutter. You don't owe nobody an apology. You don't have to fear. There's no let up, no back up, and there should never be any shut up. Speak up in the office, on the street, at the ball game. Do not be afraid of liberals or humanists or social planners or the cancel culture. Stand up. Guys, we got the name above all names behind us with all power and authority that goes with us. Lo, I am with you always. And every time we share the gospel, every time we prayer walk, every time we get involved, we have the power of heaven on our side walking on our behalf. Be informed. Stop acting like it doesn't happen. Since we've been in this room today, there have been probably 15 babies murdered. Find out where candidates stand. You want to get involved? Find out where they stand. Vote pro-life. I didn't say vote pro. I said vote pro-life. Work for constitutional amendment. Text, teach sexual morality at home. I know it's strange, it's weird, it's hard, but do it. Quit leaving it up to the church and the, and the well, school. Sure, not going to teach it. Some will, some won't. Have compassion. Show love and forgiveness to those who've had abortion. Pray. That's one thing we can definitely do, pray. Because I tell you this right here, there's a quote that says, prayer is the muscle that moves the omnipotent. If you want God to intervene, we got to pray. We want God to intervene, we got to get on our knees and cry out to God and go, God, we know that you can do something. Pray. The last thing for me, man, I'm like, God, have mercy on us. Have mercy on your church. For not doing anything but just watching. So I'm just going to challenge you today. It starts here. It starts in this room. It starts in those seats. It starts in this pulpit. And it doesn't start next week. It starts now. And it starts with us. So here's the thing. As John sings... Will God find one in one community church that'll come and stand in the gap for this nation and for the 62 million babies that have been aborted? Will he find one? Father, we come to you this morning. And God, I pray that in this place, in this moment, God, that you won't have to look very hard at finding one or two or 50 that'll come and stand, that'll bow and repent and pray to be involved. And so, God, we are trusting you in this moment. 
And God, my prayer is, is that it starts in your church, in our house this morning. Thank you for listening to Sunday Sermons. If you want to learn more about us, visit warrencommunitychurch.org.